0: All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Needed, Welcome to the show. Is a
1: realization. That power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of
0: freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline.
1: If people don't learn power, people don't wake up, and if they don't wake up,
0: they get left out we Okay, welcome back to another edition of Powerful. I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. And I think this is actually the first show that we're having in 2021. I took last week off in lieu of my birthday, which was the day before. And so I thought I would just take a little break from going live. But here we are back for another season. And I couldn't be happier to have today's guest on the show. Uh, His name is Guy Felicella. And he's got a fascinating story of addiction and recovery. And um, he spent thirty years or something. He'll he'll clarify all these details for us if the internet is not what it should be and gets us wrong. But thirty years in and out of jail and and drug treatment and addiction and and gang life and twenty of those years spent in Within, I think a two block radius on the downtown east side is what he was telling me earlier. So uh, we're going to explore addiction because, as you know, um, I bring that perspective to the show quite often. And I believe that addiction and some of the, the patterns of addiction and the behaviors of addiction actually explain a lot of human behavior better than a lot of other theories. And so we might dig into that a little bit as well. But we're gonna be talking about harm reduction and recovery and the intersection of those two philosophies and some of the things that we're doing wrong as a society that are perpetuating the very problems that we're trying to fix Uh, things like bad drug policy and bad drug laws Uh, so guy thank you so much for carving out some time out of your busy day to join me on the show tonight oh
1: thanks for having me jeff awesome
0: um why don't we dig into the backstory a little bit because i think that that'll frame up the the conversation nicely and so you know Thirty years of drug use and time spent, um, you know, in and out of treatment. I, I imagine. I know that you had some experiences with with overdoses, some near death uh, type experiences, and so maybe if you can give us not the short version, but not the not the long version. Let's not take the whole show, but give us a give us enough detail that you think fills in the questions that viewers and listeners are obviously going to have.
1: Yeah, no, no worries. Um, you know, I mean, I, I I I dealt with a a lot of uh, trauma as a child, um, you know, verbal abuse, um, uh, you know, domestic violence in the household. And, you know, it kind of really changed me as a person. I developed a lot of anxiety and and depression and, um, you know, struggled uh, uh, with stability as a child. My life was kind of, uh, you know, really contingent on um, whether, you know, how my moods of my parents were and very, uh, you know. At the same time, my parents were very well uh, financially. I mean, that that was there. We never needed money, or you know, had nice clothes and all that. But um, emotionally um, available was was the thing that um, that I didn't get, and um, that was the the stuff that you know, as a formable mind as a child, is that you're all, often always seeking. And uh, so that was one of the things that lacked in my life. And so I sought those uh, elsewhere and started acting out, getting in trouble in school. And when those things started to happen and the school started calling the, the house, my parents, then uh, that brought the public into it. And so that was kind of the shame that was brought to the family. And uh, then what happened after that is that, uh, You know, I started being blamed for the for the issues that were happening in the household. And, you know, if you can imagine being a young uh, child, that's pretty hard to take. And, you know, uh, oftentimes I come home from school on a Friday. My mom would take us all over to Victoria to, you know, leave the circumstances in the household, but always consistently go back. And um, for me, it was, you know being in, you know, women's shelters and going over to my grandmother's house to stay. It was just none of that stability. And and eventually, um, I started to realize that, uh, You know, if I was going to do something, I was going to have to take care of myself. And so I started running away from home. And then before I knew it, I was definitely lured to uh, gang activity at a very early age. And, um, you know, the draw of that was that uh, there was something missing in my life and they were going to replace that. And even though they were uh, most likely grooming me for, um, you know, their purpose, um, it still at that age felt, um, something that, uh, uh, made me feel loved, made me feel connected. And then the substances started to come into play. And, you know, I often describe it to people that if I didn't find those drugs, um, I would have probably ended my life because that was one of the things that kept, uh, coming back and forth was, was suicide a lot. And, um, and then before I know it, obviously, when you're involved with uh, gangs, drugs, and and the street life, uh, that comes with uh, a certain amount of law enforcement. And uh, before I knew it, uh, you know, I was incarcerated at a very early age at 14, and started using drugs at 12. And then my mom went to court, and uh, she uh, gave me up as a saying to the courts that uh, they could no longer handle me at home, and uh, so the courts then took a, uh Took over the whole, uh, put me as a temporary ward of the court system, which you know to me I didn't even know what that meant in the court system. But when I was being driven to um, the facility, I remember the probation officer telling me that I would no longer be going back to home, and you know, uh, and the reason behind it. And they they said, well, listen, it's, it's probably a good thing in in your in your life right now that you need to be separated from that, but inside, it was the abandonment. And, uh, you know, believing that, you know, maybe I did cause this. When you start to hear it all so often, especially the verbal abuse, you start to believe really, um, this is who you are. And I just never felt uh, worthy. And so when I got out of jail, then the ministry failed, and they bounced me around from school system to school system to group home to group home. And, you know, I started running away from that. And, so, you know, and I'm running away and I always, I always said I was just running away from pain or I was trying to run away from myself. Uh, it it's gotten deeper into drugs, deeper into gangs. And, you know, before I know it, uh, you know, I'm involved uh, deeper than I'd ever wanted to be, especially in the gang life, you know, being targeted by gang squad in Vancouver at that time was very challenging. Um, and, you know, I describe them as probably just the same thing as a gang, their intelligence, um, I mean, these guys were ruthless, too. Uh, so, you know, you had that back and forth with them. I started to really get angry at society, you know, long glances looking at me for being a drug user. And it just became to one of those places that I'd started to isolate so much. And, you know, I was venturing into the downtown east side of the youth um, as well and started selling narcotics there. And, and then, you know, eventually, um, you know, when the bullets started flying uh, in in this gang lifestyle. I mean, I was I was just horrified. I mean, uh, for me, I was like, this is not what I signed up for. Um, and I was never in a, a gang member, but I was a gang associate. And that still comes with the same risks. Um, and so eventually, uh, you know, and even the drugs they were giving me, I was doing so much drugs. And they kept saying like, hey, you know, we can't keep giving you these drugs. He keep coming back and getting more drugs and not not paying for it. And I, I remember even the you know the guy that I was working for was he was a real nice guy. I mean to me he just said, "Listen, I'm gonna take you to detox, man. You you really gotta you really gotta stop this." And he, and from then I just kind of floated into the downtown east side. Uh, and really, you know, from 1983 to 1993, I was pretty much a visitor in the downtown east side. You know, in and out. Um, And then from 1993 to 2013, I was literally, you know, homeless and and consumed in a two block radius in the downtown east side and really, um, you know, my life started to unravel uh, rather quickly. And, um, you know, I didn't come from poverty, but uh, my addiction put me in poverty situations. And I think it can work both. You either struggle with poverty or you can fall into poverty with substance use and, um, you know, my whole life revolved around using drugs. I mean, obviously, in the '90s, they survived the HIV crisis, the overdose crisis in the '90s, then, you know, survived 20 years of being being homeless and uh, being incarcerated throughout the years. I mean, uh, and 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 you know, surviving five osteomyelitis bone infections, four in my left leg, one in my back, having to learn how to walk again. I mean, you know, astronomical. Uh, odds against somebody surviving this, and then you know, in 2012, when fentanyl really started to hit the streets, I overdose and uh, six times in in, in rapid uh, succession in nine months, and um, you know, I just got to this uh, place in my life. Uh, You know, my last overdose was February 18th, 2013. And when I woke up, the nurse was crying. I started crying. I asked her why she was crying. She said, because, you know, you were gone for like 10 minutes. We just didn't think you were coming back. And I just, you know, all these moments that happened throughout my life, it was just overwhelming. And I just realized at that point that I was either going to, you know, die in my addiction or I was going to die trying to get out. And I knew the risks of trying to get out. And um, But I was going to die where I was at. Regardless, and uh, or either spend the rest of my life in prison. Two things I didn't want, and two things you know, obviously I hate prison, but I to die I'd probably hate more. And uh, you know, I left the downtown east side with one set of clothes on my back and a pair of sandals, and um, you know, went to an outpatient treatment. I mean, I tried treatment for my whole life. I was always trying to get off these drugs because it was painful. Really what i come to realize is the drugs that saved my life as a child. And they did, they really did. They saved my life. Um, Cause I don't believe I would have, I would have, I would have just ended my life, but those same drugs decades later were now trying to kill me. And I, when I saw that you're, you're kind of left with a, like, what do I do? It's like a bad relationship. Like, how do I get out of this? And, you know, I battled to live on this earth, uh, you know, for those just to persevere through um, the amount that I had to persevere through to, to get to a place, you know, just to survive all that, but then to actually have to go and then try to rebuild your life. I mean, the system sure doesn't make it easy for
0: anybody. And that's what, what do you attribute your survival to? Because a lot of people don't survive. Like that's all I imagine. I don't know the statistics on it, but that seems like that's a pretty long run in that lifestyle. And, and, you know, from infections that took you to the hospital to overdoses to just gang life in general, like, what do you attribute your survival to what contributed to that? Um, Either, I guess, your own personal characteristics, or elements of the system, whether or not it's not a formal system, maybe it's part of the informal support networks and systems. Um, What do you like? Is there are there things that you can point to and say that saved my life for sure, in the same way that you can point to drugs and say that saved me as a child and was later only later became a problem is are there things that really saved you um where you attribute to survival
1: without a doubt 100 walking living proof that uh without harm reduction services and harm reduction uh interventions there's absolutely no way that i would be on this earth and when you when you realize that and i mean listen you get beaten into you know the ground um And to have something, you know, know, save your life to give you the ability to have the life that you have today, you know, you just can never overlook something that's so powerful. It doesn't, you know, where's what I say to people with that don't believe in harm reduction. is that, you know, if, if it didn't exist and I wouldn't have this life, does it make me any less of a person that I had to go 30 years to actually be kept alive? Does it make me any different of a person today? Whether I would have got it on day one, absolutely not. There's there's no less or more value in anybody. It's it's a service that needs to be, you know, it's a practice and a principle that needs to be implemented in every single community, because you can't backload everybody to go to treatment and then realize that how do you get them there? What's the process? If we know that this is a chronic relapsing condition. Uh, And that it takes multiple attempts for somebody to actually even get there. Uh, To me, it's just one of those things that's the most vitalist intervention that needs to happen in the continuum of care for addiction and recovery services period. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and the research is clear on it. So there's the obviously the lived experience and just the the compassionate side of ourselves that should say that should make it a no brainer. Right. But there's also a lot of research on. Like, I mean, lives saved, but cost reduction, if we're going to be totally cold about it from a societal perspective, you know, there's a lot of benefit to harm reduction services. And I think, you know, they've been stigmatized. And certainly I live in a province, Alberta, where there's a there's a really heavy stigma. And there's been a battle um, in the last couple of years between harm reduction and recovery as a a mindset piece, not realizing that they both should be working together. There seems to be very much an us versus them or either or. Um, And in the current political climate, certainly recovery, if you want to call it just like abstinence-based recovery, is certainly winning that public perception battle, if it were, or at least a policy um, battle. Um, Maybe before we dig into kind of some policy conversations and some of the stigma and some of the associated pieces. I'm curious about that journey. So you've, you've come back from that last overdose, um, February, 2013, and you make that decision that you're going to either die in the addiction or you're going to die trying to get out of it. And you obviously take the, I'm going to die trying to get out of it route. What happened for you from that point forward? Like what what made that possible or what was i guess what was the if you can you walk us through that next couple of months years i imagine it's still ongoing uh to some degree for you but what were some of the the turning points within that piece of the journey
1: yeah well you know for me you know the harm reduction advocates they knew too i mean it was they were surprised i was still alive i mean they witnessed 20 years they were just like we're just shocked that you're still uh, living uh, and I just said to them, I just said, listen, I just I, I, I really have to I have to break free. I, I kind of, you know, I surround myself in a two block radius for two decades, but I also had the the dreams of a two block radius. So the mindset, nothing, nothing outside of that to inspire me anything uh, bigger. And I just remember saying that, you know, <clears throat> I knew the system because I'd been through it so often. Um, so I knew a place in Surrey. Uh, which was just basically a transitional house. I mean, you just couldn't use drugs there. I mean, you did a few, uh, you know, readings with uh, you know, some groups there. Uh, it was basically your own journey. They basically just said to you, listen, if you use drugs, you're going to go. Uh, we encourage you to find a path that works for you. And for me, I went to an outpatient program and um, I, I'd, I'd gotten luckily for me, there was a, a uh, the counselor that was there normally, she was on mat leave. So they had this trauma therapist there. I tell you, things just worked out. I mean, this was uh, the most biggest thing that impacted my uh, recovery journey was having a trauma therapist uh, helped me understand, first of all, why I use the drugs, uh, but then to understand my relationship with the drugs. And then to say that, um, you know, also to you know, I really started to understand that it's, it's not the, the drugs that were bad, it's just why I was using the drugs because I lacked all these skills, these skills that weren't given to me as a child, these skills that weren't given to me as a, as a teenager. So I basically learned, um, you know, how to cope with uh, the pain that way. And I, I tell you, I did, I got to do that for a full year. And, um, I just really cemented, it gave me some self-worth, some, uh, and then obviously as well, um, I was going to uh, some outside meetings and I, I met a guy, uh, who's now my father-in-law, but back then, you know, he saw me at a meeting and he saw me with uh, one pair of sandals. He didn't even know me. He saw me with a pair of sandals at a meeting in the winter. And, uh, <clears throat> I think it was about three times that he'd saw me, and I just kept coming back to this one meeting with with sandals on, and he came up to me and he just said, uh, "Hey,, uh, do you mind if I uh, take you out after the meeting? I'll take you out for breakfast, and do you have shoes? And I just I remember I was so embarrassed because I didn't have shoes. And I said, Well, listen, yeah, no i i I'm waiting for my check to come, which was income assistance. Um, and I'm gonna go buy some. And he just said, "Oh, oh, yeah, cool." Uh, he says, "Well, hey, can I take you out for breakfast uh, after the meeting? Want to go out for breakfast with me?" My name's he introduced. My name's Ron, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, sure." And um, we go out for breakfast, and then he says, "Listen, let's." Takes me to a store and buys me uh, some shoes and some clothes, and and I just told him, I said, "Hey, listen, I can I can never pay back. I spent like four hundred bucks, and I just said, oh, I I mean, I just don't. It's not something." And he just said to me, he says, "Listen, if you stick around and 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 you'll understand one day." And that's all he said. And uh, we just became, uh, we became friends. And uh, then I met his daughter and, um, you know, he asked me one day to come over and paint the house or help paint the house. And I said, of course, and started helping him there. And, you know, just kind of took me in as a, as a person, knew my story. And then I met his daughter and then, I mean, his daughter was just beautiful. I fell in love with her right away. <laughs> she actually probably thought uh, she saw me with a tank top on. Cause she came in and she saw me, she actually, was because uh, I have sleeves of tattoos, and he just didn't look like somebody that would be in her house. And, uh, she ran to her dad and said, "Oh my god, this big guy's in our house!" <laughs> oh no, it's, it's it's guy. It's okay. And she was like, "Oh my god!" I was just startled because I wasn't startled. I was just startled at his his uh, his his appearance, and maybe I, I might have looked a little frightening back then. But uh, uh, we met, and and the rest is really history.
0: Yeah, it seemed to work out. So um, that's interesting. So, it's, so trauma therapy really was the turning point, it seems, or a, a, a piece of the puzzle that had been missing for you um, over the years of trying different types of treatment, I imagine, um, over the years. And by, by meetings, for those who aren't familiar with addictions treatment, I'm assuming you mean some sort of 12-step meetings, 12-step groups is kind of a, the, the classic, um, I guess, community of recovery um, in North America. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I went to I, I you know I did the twelve step meetings for for honestly for about uh, for about five years you know and um, really actually I haven't been to a meeting in probably like four years so I've just what I've done though uh, is I've taken little components from other other methods of, of treatment formulations of treatments and really kind of just combined what what I liked from each one of them and. Uh, you know, I kind of made it into my own success. One of the biggest things that I often tell people is that, uh, you know, you got to find your path, what works for you. And there's, there's some things that 12 step that I really think are really beneficial. And then there's some things I just think that, you know, it's not for me. And for me, what I did do is I pick components from that. And then, but also having my, my own foundation of harm reduction is really the foundation of the recovery that I have today. You know, I, reducing risks would have been if if somebody would have given me that opportunity um, instead of like having to stop immediately. um, That was really challenging for me for a long time. But if you would have had a facility that would have said, listen, we just want you to reduce the risk. But I always tell people this, that even if you're going through it and your goal is, or you're trying to stop using drugs, celebrate the small wins, man, because the small wins turn into one big win eventually. And I started to celebrate like, hey, you know what, I only use six times today instead of using 10. Those were big steps in in moments and movements in my life that really got me to a place. People used to always say to me in the downtown east side because I'd always be up at the on-site detox. You know, there's two lineups to the injection site, one to go and inject drugs at 9 a.m. and one to go into detox at 9 a.m. And both are packed. I mean, you know, you wouldn't know which line it is, but I fluctuate back from back and forth from line to line. People used to always say, what do you keep going up there for? I go, because I got to keep doing this. This is what I'm trying. But people support. People were like, man, dude, I'll give you the A for effort. You don't quit. And that's the same kind of thing that that I had. I just, you know, I, I refuse to give up. And even my broken dreams, those dreams can be um, repaired. And they were. And my life's, uh, you know, pretty darn good. But my life is really contingent on the support of people around me. think that's very important for people to understand is that you really want to surround yourself around people that support you and love you for who you are and don't don't listen to the ones that don't
0: yeah i think that's such an important point that i think maybe mainstream society doesn't really appreciate is the there is a very we've 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 very much individualized addiction right it's guy and his addiction as opposed to kind of our addiction as a community, right. And our responsibility and the, the notion that addicts can are somehow, you know, like I said, we were talking a little bit before we went live about different paradigms of addiction and ways of looking at it. And there's the addiction as choice model where it's, you know, you're just morally weak and you're you know, you don't have the motivation that you need. You just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and make better choices, that kind of choice model. Um, has shifted I think over into more of a disease model at large at least in the healthcare system. We'll, we'll call it a disease, but then we won't really treat it like a disease, right? because you know if somebody relapses from cancer we don't say you don't get more treatment, right Those, those types of inconsistencies maybe with the approach with the disease model. Um, my, my, my paradigm is somewhere in the middle. I, I think it's a very I think it's wired into us as human. I think we're all susceptible depending on our degrees of trauma in our life and that i can look into my own life and although you wouldn't necessarily classify it as an addiction it's a behavior that has short-term benefits with long-term negative consequences right and i think all of us if we're real with ourselves have things that we want to change because they're not really working for us right now and so i think it's a spectrum much more than it is black and white which we you know that's a conversation we can have but um i love the kind of the fact that you went and built your own recovery model because something that I focus on a lot in my work when i'm working with with programs and centers and, and treatment kind of systems is like a one size fits one approach to addiction treatment as opposed to this one size fits all this abstinence or nothing or this harm reduction with no access to more support with you know this the ability to really connect with what's meaningful for the individual and provide that type level of service i think is you know i'd love to see that's a pipe dream of mine that i'd love to see down the road is a very much more responsive addictions treatments services in in general um let's maybe let's shift gears a little bit if you're okay to talk about some of those um bigger picture issues around around addiction some you know bad drug policy um yeah, let's start there. Let's start with some of like how we treat um, kind of the drug supply. I know it's something that you're you're passionate about. Um, and just generally speaking, what's wrong with the how we're viewing addiction from a from a macro level from the kind of 30,000 feet.
1: I think, you know, you have people that are struggling with addiction and you have people that use drugs that don't have a substance use disorder or an addiction issue, but all or everybody's at risk right now with the contaminated drug supply. So anybody that uses drugs is going to, you know, uh, is at risk of of overdose and dying. Um, So one of the, one of the things that needs, one of the things that's really causing, um, you know, oftentimes we look at the, the contaminated drug supply, it's really the drug policy that's killing people um implemented through laws uh and discriminated discriminative laws uh, against uh not only indigenous people but uh, people of color um and anybody else in between that uses drugs these laws are based to really control populations of people and really who's impacted the most is is people who struggle with poverty indigenous black people uh people of color uh people Homeless, and it's it's rooted in its rigid policies that doesn't allow us to actually uh, implement strategies such as a safer drug supply or a regulated drug supply to actually help people um, be removed from this market. It's also fueled uh, gang violence, uh, housing unaffordability, addiction, overdose. Uh, you you know it it's benefiting the illicit market uh, so much, and it's costing us as uh, as a health system, uh, boatloads of money with, you know, first in the 90s with HIV, hepatitis C, infections. Um, and I mean, the antibiotics that I was on, we're talking, these antibiotics had to be pumped into my heart every four hours for three months. There's not something that goes into your to your, to your vein. They directly put a PIC line to go directly into your heart because if these drugs don't get in there, uh, you're going to die. And these drugs aren't cheap either. And so when you look at it, I, I, I mean, it is just, you know, when you look at the war on drugs and prohibition and what it's done, it's actually, you know, the definition of insanity. I think it's Albert Einstein doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. We're, we're way past that. Um, we're, we've just gone so far beyond that. And yet, um, you know, also the mass incarceration, Uh, And it's not about rehabilitation. It's about incarceration. So nobody gets rehabilitated in jail. Um, So we've just, you know, our drug policy is really the driving force, but also it fuels the general population's views on people who use drugs or who people who struggle with addiction. And it's why people isolate, use alone and then die because of it. And we just don't give anybody any hope um, with our policies and procedures. And these are the things that really need to change if we really want to actually support people who are struggling with addiction. And actually, if we honestly want to say, you know what, people use drugs in our society. We live in a society that uses drugs. We've just created this divide of what drugs are socially acceptable and what drugs are not. And if you look at alcohol, it kills more people than heroin and every other drug known to man. And yet it's legalized, sold, advertised, um, and given to people and you know one person dies every 10 seconds uh worldwide um and you know even in vancouver I, I laughed because on december 31st they restricted alcohol for 13 hours here and everybody was like you know freaking out It exploded yeah and i was just like hey welcome to the real world look at the illicit market where people are struggling to get drugs. we can't even get uh, safer drugs and you guys are complaining over 13 hours but um Yeah. So our drug policies really have to change if we really want to, uh, look at not only ending overdose, but eventually, um, you know, helping people that are struggling with addiction.
0: So what are some of those changes that are, that are possible or are happening in other jurisdictions? I know we all, we often point to Portugal, um, As an example of, and there's other places probably around the world that are taking a more liberal stance when it comes to drugs and decriminalizing and or legalizing. Can you walk us through, I guess, the various options, because, you know, I am sure that a lot of us, myself included, probably don't necessarily just like what's the distinction between a decriminalization of something and a legalization? And, you know, when you're talking safe supply, what do you what do you mean by that? What are the options for that? Is it can I buy heroin at the corner store? Or like what are we talking about? Um when it comes to some of these policy changes that you think would be most helpful? Well, I think one,
1: obviously, if this is a health issue, like everybody says it is the decriminalization aspect just has to happen because we're punishing people for for using drugs putting them in jail they're not get it's not helping anybody it's not serving a purpose it's just making things worse so the criminalization is one then we can put it into a you know it, it could be looked then it can be truly looked upon as a health issue because until that happens i don't i don't really consider it a health issue until it's actually out of the justice system
0: you don't now, get locked up for getting diagnosed with diabetes
1: right yeah well, you know, I wasn't diagnosed uh, with anything until about 40. They started to realize that I had a mild comprehension disorder and, uh, you know, ADHD. And, and, uh, and the crazy thing is, is I, they were like, uh, I was like, this, they were saying to me, this is probably why you use stimulants your whole life. And I was just like, oh, and get punished for it too. So, you know, misdiagnosed by the health system and then punished by the justice system and then looked upon in society as a piece of garbage and a junkie and a drug addict. And then, you know, <laughs> to, like to have to go through these crushing blows uh, are astronomical for anybody to ever get better. But um, one of the things that I think you have to look at is, uh, you know, heroin is, is, is basically, you know, obviously it's political, but it's also uh, the UN and US drug sanctions allow only a, an allotment to come in. But if you look at Switzerland, for an example, it was a pretty good program of a HAT program, heroin assisted treatment program. In a country that has 8.5 million people, um, they have 1,700 people on heroin-assisted treatment. They actually even do heroin-assisted treatment in prisons. Um, And then you look at a country like Canada, 37.5 million, and there's roughly 120 people on heroin across the country. I mean, that is egregious. There's actually 420 injectable eye spots across our country. That's it. I mean, when you look at that, you say to yourself, okay, you know, some lives matter more than others and drug users' lives just don't matter much because if they did, we just wouldn't allow this to continue. We would actually say, okay, we have to stop this. We have to stop this now and we have to implement strategies that, uh, you know, meet drug users where they're at, not where we want them to be. And that's where harm reduction is vital, uh, harm reduction has been trying to reduce the harms of bad drug policy for decades. And harm reduction is often limited by what it can actually do because of these rigid drug policies, the Controlled Substances Act that don't you know, allow us to actually give um, drug users the drugs that they are most sought after. We try to give drug users the drugs that are least sought after and expect like things to happen. And that's just not going to happen. And I'm hopeful and optimistic that, uh, that as, uh, as the governments uh, see this and are starting to understand this, that they act quickly, exactly the same response that they put into COVID. Um, I would love to see that with the overdose crisis, because this, this is going to continue to get worse. And it's don't blame COVID, um, blame the lack of urgency in the response um, to the overdose crisis. But This has been going on for decades. It's not something that's happened in the last four years and especially not something yet. Sure. COVID maybe exasperated everything and ripped down the curtain uh, with a bunch of things, but we can't go back to the way things were because so many people will die. And if there isn't harm reduction services like this in communities, I mean, if we didn't have harm reduction, the amount of lives lost in this country would be, it's already outrageous, but I mean, just the sheer amount, it'd be like, I think it was the BCCDC did it a report. It'd be double of what it is. And to me, I mean, that's these aren't numbers. These are like people. I've 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 lost so many people. I have to live with my life, knowing all the people that I've lost. I I I I've met so many moms that have lost and dads that have lost their children. And I mean, I have to I have to live with that too. Like, we all have to, and, you know, I think as a society, we've just either lack the empathy and compassion, and then what's worse is we've become tone deaf to, you know, didn't we see people's silent screams? Sure, we did. But what's worse is that we became deaf to those screams and did absolutely nothing. And to me, that's why... I get up every day. I get up to fight for my kids. I get up to fight for your kids and everybody else's kids, because there's no bloody way in my lifetime that I will try to leave this behind for any other generation to clean up. This is something that we have to do and we have to keep pushing for it and, you know, make the necessary changes to get people the support that they need.
0: Yeah. It seems like if we're not willing to like the, the, that, it's actually the, the very least we can do as a society if we're not going to, if we're not going to get in front of child abuse and childhood trauma and some of the like very real causal factors that we, we know like the research is also conclusive. That's the, that's the thing that probably pisses me off the most is that like we have the data, we have the research and we're not acting on it because of lack of compassion, lack of empathy, ideological blindness, um, in in lots of, you know, political parties and, and different stripes. Um, but the, the research on adverse childhood experiences is very clear, right? And the links to more like morbidity, adult morbidity and things like addiction, but also heart disease and obesity and all bunch of other chronic health conditions. And and there doesn't seem to be like, I'm not seeing a widespread um, campaign or effort to resolve childhood trauma, right? Like we're just not, we're not there. And if we're not there, then we have to take some responsibility for the impact of that on on people when 10 15 20 years later like it's not like there's a the supply of people with addiction substance use disorders is, is slowing down right if anything it's very much you know the, the data i looked at years ago and you might have a better perspective on this was that basically we haven't nudged addiction at all like addiction rates haven't changed despite decades and decades of bad drug policy and criminalization right obviously not working yeah. you, you alluded to that you know we've been running this experiment and it's an utter failure this war on drugs um and we know that, and policymakers know that, and researchers know that. So, where is the barrier? Is it stigma? Is it lack of compassion? Is it ideological at this point?
1: I think it depends where you are. Like, I know, um, you, you know, if you look at Vancouver they, or BC, they often say that British Columbia is the, you know, does British Columbia compare itself with the rest of the country and saying, well, we're doing better than everybody else? I think you have to compare yourself to the rest of the world and start looking at models that have done been successful with decriminalization, or also heroin assisted treatment. Start comparing yourself with, you know, Switzerland and and, uh, and Germany as as their heroin assisted treatments in that way, in that regards, and then really break down the 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 rigidity of the barriers to allow a country to. I think Canada needs to move quickly on a domestic supplier and make their own heroin here and I bet you you know 30 years ago or in the 90s when Switzerland moved to you know uh, they went from enforcement to just give them the heroin and you know probably the laughing stock of the universe right uh, they don't look too bad right now it, those bold moves paid off and uh, I, I will often wonder if if Canada thinks the same thing they don't want to be looked upon as the laughing stock uh, for doing something like but listen you, you know One day, uh, it doesn't matter whose watch it is, but I'll tell you right now: um, the government will be accountable to this crisis. Uh, All governments that that have have, uh, let this uh, go past uh, and continue—it's a—it's a—it's a a dark uh, Canadian history um, that will be uh, unveiled uh, uh, one day in the future, and I don't think it'll be that long before. you know, people look back and go like, how could you let this happen? Like, and, and do not, what were you thinking? Um,
0: it starts to look like negligence when you know better and you continue to do it. Like it, if, it if there's an individual in the court of law and they were asked, did you know that it was wrong, but you did it anyway. You know, it's pretty damning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you, so you've shifted gears obviously. And you now you work in a few different places i i read on your bio you work for um or what are you what are you doing professionally or what does your professional life look like when it comes to this mission that you're on and this this purpose that's driving you well i have a i have
1: an amazing job or jobs are, um, you know i work for the provincial overdose uh, response center here in bc but i also work for the bc center on substance use and then also vancouver coastal health regional addiction program so it puts me in a really Wide range of levels of policy, health, and government, and to understand the complexities that exist uh, that implement strategies to benefit people who are struggling. And so, um, you know, I've witnessed the the movement. I mean, you know, even if I look back on my life, I mean, there was no harm reduction in the beginning. (laughs) It wasn't even a word until you know the '90s, early '90s, and um, you know, today where I see, uh, you know at least this government that's in in place right now has done much more than any government in the past. Um, And so we've come a long way since, for sure, since the early nineties to where we are today, we still have a long way to go. Um, You know, and then I also um, have my uh, own consulting business where I do public speaking, um, you know, on a, a wide range of topics, but, especially, you know, trauma, uh, mental health, addiction, recovery, and harm reduction. I blend uh, um, both my uh, recovery as being, you know, uh, the foundation is harm reduction. And so I, give, I offer that perspective. I'm not all in on one or all in on the other. I'm all in on all of it. And really, it's up to the individual um, where they want to go. I just lay out options for people. And so, you know, and I also, um, you know, I'm involved in a, a bunch of the school systems here in BC. And that's um, been phenomenal. I never tell kids to use drugs. Even kids come up to me and, you know, after I do a talk, there's like a lineup of kids to talk about their struggles with drugs. And uh, I never tell kids to use drugs. I never encourage anybody to use drugs. However, if you are using drugs, I, I definitely tell you how to use them safely. And so what we've done in the school system out here in BC is we've shifted the approach from, um, you know, drugs are bad, don't do them to, hey, you know what, there's lots of different reasons why people use drugs, what's the reason why you use them, and let's let's find out if it's uh, problematic, and if it's not problematic, then hey, listen, we just want you to use them safely, and I tell you, the, the response is just amazing. Um, so that's really exciting, uh, it's probably one of my biggest passions, because Uh, stigma in our stigma starts early, and especially our children feel it. And that's the driving force of isolation in our youth. And then if we come with this, uh, you know, all in approach on, you know, don't use them, they're bad, don't try them, don't experiment with drugs, either. You know, if you want kids to actually use drugs, just keep telling them not to do it, and that they're bad. And then guess what, they'll continue to do it, but they won't tell you. That's that's the problem. I, you know, I walk into a school, talk to a kid for an hour. They, the counselors tell me, they tell you more than an hour after you've come there than they've told me all year. And it's because you're relatable to them. And I've done, you know, it's probably my, one of my favorite works is because, you know, those, our youth are going to be the leaders one day. And I want to break down those silos of stigma so that Now, substance users, if they use drugs that they don't have to hide and isolate, and if a substance user is using drugs and wants to stop using drugs and is struggling with addiction, they don't have to hide either, and it's easier to put your hand up and ask for help. Because we just silence people uh, from talking about it because we shame them and condemn them for having an issue. And really what we forget to look at is that, you know, we care more about abused animals than we do human beings. Um, and to me, if that's what's going on for many people in our society, man, that is just messed up. And, you know, I want people to understand that behind everybody that's struggling with substance use, trauma is the main driver behind that. And if any child we'd witness in our lifetime being abused sexually, physically, verbally, we would do anything to jump in and protect that child. Well, guess what? That person that's 23, they fell through the cracks and now they're struggling uh, and using drugs. But instead of offering up that compassion and that hand um, to support them, we sit there and punish them. And then we talk at them and tell them that they need to get off the drugs and stop using the drugs uh, because they're bad. And that just drives them further into their substance use. And then it sure doesn't help them. You know, if you have to go through the process to go into treatment and it's astronomical, you may do it once. And then when it doesn't work and you got to go back and try it again, you definitely don't. It's very, very challenging.
0: You're, uh, you're singing my tune. We, uh, we inherited so the the program that i worked at um for most of its history was actually a youth justice facility and so it was an open custody facility foothills of the rocky mountains kind of a work camp for for juveniles um that funding shifted in the early 2000s that program went away and an addiction treatment a voluntary addiction treatment program started up but still had a lot of the same mindset and a lot of the legacy kind of leftover attitudes around the population because it's kind of the same kids right you just swap them out from you're here because you got caught doing something or you're here because you're you know voluntarily in addictions treatment as a youth isn't that often that voluntary it's usually there's a lot of pressure involved from somebody somewhere with power is trying to get you to change something so kids would show up and they would inevitably because it was voluntary at some point would choose to leave and for a while that was framed as a failure and but not the program's failure it was it was framed as their failure they weren't ready for treatment um and we worked really hard and you know it's probably one of my my proudest things to be is the staff team worked really hard to shift that perspective to treatment is failing these individuals they're not failing treatment what do we need to change what do we need to do and that was really the genesis of the one size fits one approach where you know this isn't a bus that you get on that takes it from a to b because that doesn't work for anybody you end up with an average program that's mediocre at best that is trying to be everything to everybody and it's nothing to anyone um and i see that repeated over and over and over again um and so yeah no lots of different ways that we could go with this conversation and we could probably do a round two and have just as much to talk about um i'd like to touch a little bit on you mentioned shame and I really think that if we're going to call addiction a disease, that it should be a shame based disorder. Like that's the roots of it. And there's lots of good research out there on that as well. And I think lots of lived experience that points to shame as a, as a very strong contributing factor to addiction. Um, and with that shame comes a sense of powerlessness and hopelessness. And I think that that's as bad or as deadly as the, the drugs themselves is a sense of hopelessness. And so I'm curious around because you must have been able to maintain some element of hope to keep lining up again. And whichever line you chose that morning at nine o'clock, you know, there was something that was driving you to get up and get yourself there and and do that. What what do you attribute that to, like that ability to retain some kind of hope in what seems like it would be very easy to slide into hopelessness?
1: You know, it's I often describe. people always ask me, hey, was that last time that you overdosed the moment? And I said, well, it was many moments that led up to that moment. And I think, you know, I build a prison wall around me from my childhood all the way up until I'm, you know, 43 years old. And really what happened, what I, you know, look back and attribute it to is the people that just kept chipping away at it. And uh, it was that compassion and that understanding. And it, this didn't come from people in recovery. This came from people that, were didn't you know just were trying to keep me alive?
0: They so your that. drug dealer. I like, took you to detox, or like pushed you towards detox. So that's, yeah. that's a different narrative. I think a lot of people would not assume that a drug right. a drug dealer would you know have that level of compassion or empathy.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, they even saw me as like, okay, well, I mean, there's probably a couple things going through their mind. They're like, man, this guy, we just keep giving him dope, and he keeps losing our money, so we <laughs> gotta get this <laughs> Uh, they were really, they were really good. And, you know, I even, even, even a lot of the drug dealers that knew me in the downtown east side, they, you know, when I was on outreach is it, I mean, they would come up to me and just be like, Oh man, like unbelievable. They were, they were overwhelmed. Uh, you know, telling, me hugs, telling, like, man, this is so much better to see you like this. Like, we are super proud of you. And even today, you know, I, I still see him from time to time uh, when I'm in the downtown east side saying hi to people. And, you know, that that shame was rooted in me believing the lies developed by verbal abuse develops an inner negative voice inside of me. And that was the driver of the unworthiness and the self-hatred and the tremendous amount of shame that I felt, but also what kept me trapped in the shame was also what I had to do to get the drugs. That kept me just in this big ball of pain. And that's where I often talk to people about Safer Supply. If we could remove that habitual aspect of what you have to do to get the drugs and offer people safer drugs so that they didn't have to do the things that keep them trapped, uh, in their addiction or in their substance use disorder, we could alleviate that pressure and then give them the ability to focus on other things such as, uh, you know, repairing their relationships with their family or their children or whoever, uh, get jobs and more skills. And, um, you know, I was just a, a, you know, a lot of the times I had a sense of hopelessness. But, uh, you know, at the right time, at the right moment, you know, somebody came by and, you know, offered me a sandwich. You know, I, I remember being homeless on December 25th, eight years ago, homeless and sleeping in a doorway and frozen. And some lady, some lady, random lady, walked by and had a coffee, tapped me on the shoulder and said, leaned over and I got up and I had my sleeping bag and it was soaking wet from the dew. I mean, I was drenched and she hands me the coffee and she says, you know, it's a double double and then goes into her wallet and gives me 50 bucks and then leans over and gives me a hug and says, Merry Christmas. And I tell you, I'm like. Hey, hey, thank you. You don't even know. And she's just keeps going. Moments that happen like that are the things that I've remembered that there are people that do care. And that moment is one of those moments I'll never forget. And the same moment at the February 18th, uh, when the nurse, Sarah, who actually works as a nurse in Alberta now, when she was in tears, I mean that just crumbled everything. And at that moment, I was ready to to to, to do something, um, to try another uh, avenue. And, um, you know, it 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 it's just so many. It's that when people show that uh, that you're a human being and that you do matter. I tell you cuz I beat myself I'm the worst guy for making mistakes and beating myself up for it. I just don't need anybody else to do it for me. I'm already
0: nobody else will be hard
1: as hard on you. Yeah. So I mean I, I'm I'm talking about I want to jump off a bridge. Um, you know, and then I'd also too, you know, I'd heard all the the negative society voices and how people viewed me as a, as a person that used drugs. I mean, I I had to deal with all that my whole life. But I always tell people, it's like, listen, I I heard it my whole life as a child. So, you know, really what I didn't understand in the beginning is obviously what I went through as a child was actually going to help me later on in my life as getting out of it as the abuse that was going to come from from our society. And I just got to a place, you know, thank God there there was people that did care about me. And those are the people that I asked for help and they helped me. And you know, the many attempts we're talking 30 years to actually get (laughs) one year sober. 30 years it took for me to get one year. New 30 years. You know how many times I tried treatment to go into treatment? You know, I'd do some, I'd be gone for three months, I'd leave, come back, go do another one, two months, leave, come back, go. I I tell you, so many. And I never really, you know, I always thought it was a failure because people always said it was a failure. But when I look back on it, I was like, man, are you crazy? You guys see that as failure? I see that as ma-. See, that's where I tell people, celebrate your wins, those small wins, because they lead up to one big one. And now I'm just living proof uh, that there's a there's a big win out there. You know, I, I have a great life. I, I don't... Uh, You know, I dealt with the, I still do trauma therapy. Unfortunately, you have to pay for it. Um, But my trauma therapist, uh, who I've been seeing for quite some time now, has put me on a sliding scale contingent to make it affordable for me so I can go twice a month. And I I tell you, that's the maintenance stuff that you need. You're not going to go into a treatment facility for four months and then your life's going to become successful. No. It doesn't work like that this is a this is a long haul in the process and i think where you look at treatment doesn't guarantee that somebody's not going to use drugs again either so you need supports and services in place and especially anybody that goes into treatment nowadays that leaves they're at extremely high risk of overdose if they do go back and use and there should be a safer drug supply for people that are are leaving recovery and that they can access because if we know this is a chronic relapse and condition then we need to have supports in place for people. Um, so that they can try again. And I would love to see more treatment centers uh, in our country say, hey, we support this safer supply model because if somebody is going to leave our recovery center, we would like to take them to a safer supply model so that they don't have to use the contaminated drug supply because we want to work, uh, give them the ability to have another opportunity instead of overdosing and dying. But you don't see that. And that's something that needs to happen.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's... An opportunity there to have a much more united front as an addictions continuum. Um, And that there has been, at least in Alberta, I think what I've noticed is kind of fighting over the scraps of budget. You know, there's not a lot of budget that gets thrown, I think, in healthcare in general, when you compare it to other conditions and diseases. It's a pittance of of health dollars that are spent on addiction, but it doesn't help that it's a fragmented system that is competing for a lot of those dollars. Um, And you see beds going up in one like in Alberta right now, we've got lots of beds available in these abstinence based recovery facilities, and they've shut down the safe consumption sites. and it's like, how's that gonna work to, together? How's that working for us? And it's not, obviously. But.
1: well, if you look at the model at Insight in Vancouver, like I said, you know, injection floor, detox floor, and a transitional floor. I, I mean, like come on, like there it is. there's your there's your model. there's your there's there it is. Have it all. Uh, don't put one over the other. You can't put all your eggs in recovery basket and especially at the expense of harm reduction. Uh, Cause in this day and age, listen, there's, there's a lot of people um, that sometimes it's just stopping the harms of the drug that they're using. And sometimes that's uh, a replacement with another drug um, that helps them. And, you know, oftentimes uh, we go all in on trying to tell people to that they don't need to use drugs. Uh, sure, I mean, in my life, I got there. Uh, but like I said, that that was a journey and, and one that was only possible because of arm reduction.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to have a round two and have a have a chat about so, some so, keep digging into these topics. But I, I don't. I want to respect your time, and you've got you've got a young family. But that actually leads me to my final question about, um, I guess, parenting. Because as a parent myself, I've got three small kids, and I, and I'm conscious. I'm always conscious of like addiction. Like, what do I need to do to protect like protective factors around, um, addiction and how do I want to be as a parent? And I guess one of those, I guess that's a question maybe that I'll leave you with is, um, we can wrap up on what does your parenting look like based on the experiences that you've had, both from your own childhood, but also through your journey of addiction? Um, how do you approach parenting? What are some of those things that you hold on to really tightly as I got to make sure that, I, you know, your wife and, and you take care of this thing or you do this thing? What, uh, do you have anything that really stands out?
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm blessed. I mean, I have a, you know, I, I call it, there's like a, you know, we all in our bloodline, we have these generational curses and really, you know, for the abuse when, when my wife was first pregnant with our first child, I mean, there was a lot of fear in my life. Um, As, as much as it was a beautiful thing, I was very fearful. And I was like, there is absolutely no way, Um, you know, and it took me years of trauma therapy, uh, you are not responsible for the abuse that you endured as a child, and you. Were, but you are responsible to make sure that that trauma and that abuse doesn't get passed on any further. And it took me so long to actually believe that because I believed for so long that I was the problem. And I remember in my trauma therapist, she said that when you were born, the issues with your family or your parents, they already existed years before, decades before, generations before. You were not the problem. And the light bulb went on. And so for me, when um, my son was born, what the greatest gift with having my kids is that the childhood that I really missed out on, um, especially emotionally, um, you know, don't show emotion, don't cry, don't do that. I mean, I'm kind of like the Disney dad. My kids uh, have an open platform. Uh, If they're not having a good day, then they can have a bad day um you know i uh, i'm there emotionally for them um you know i'm reliving my childhood through my own children and then also too um my kids you know we go into the downtown east side um you know they know that they are very privileged um you know they um you know, when we see people that are sleeping on the streets, my daughter is, you know, she sees it and I remember her asking me, um, Dad, how come somebody's sleeping on the street? And I just explained it to her. Those are learning moments, teachable moments, where you say, Listen, not everybody has a place to live. It's it's very expensive. People have different circumstances in their life, trauma, poverty. You live in a very good life. You have a bed and you have you know a family and um these are valuable people in our community. They're just people that have uh, different circumstances in their life. And I remember we parked back cause we go to this, we have this favorite breakfast place in the downtown East side that we go to when we went This before COVID obviously. But uh, when we went back that the person that was sleeping on that street where we parked, they weren't there. And immediately my, my, four-year-old, she was three-year-old at the time, she jumped out of the van, she, she jumped up and down, she said, dad, dad, the the, the person that was sleeping on the street, they, they're not here anymore, it means they got a bad dad, and I just looked at her and I said, "Gia, if the world revolved like you and how you talk, we'd be in such a better place, but really what it is, is that it's, um, you know, you just have those teachable moments with your children, um, and you know, obviously me, my kids don't even, my, my wife said to me, I, they probably just noticed them about a month ago because they never said anything. Um, you know, they don't see tattoos on their, they just see their dad. And one time we were at pigeon park and we were handing out sandwiches and they were eating their peanut butter sandwiches at pigeon park. I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on at this park. I mean, you got people selling cigarettes, probably people selling drugs, et cetera, et cetera. My, your kids don't see that. They're just there with their parents eating their sandwiches, looking at everybody. You know, to them, there's nothing wrong. It's really what happens to us is we get, um, you know, filtered from societal beliefs that filter into us, and then we become biased and judgmental. And so, uh, yes, I I will definitely, when my kids are at the right age, uh, to talk to them about substance use. And listen, you know, listen, kids are going to experiment. And I know that. And, uh, so you're going, I'm going to definitely tell them, um, you know, basically, Hey, if you're going to experiment, you know, let me know, uh, it's all good. Like, I just don't want you to do something you don't want to do. I don't, you know, you're going to experiment. Listen, I'd rather have you experiment here, uh, than experiment, uh, somewhere else, you know, and people may look at that as being crazy, but Hey. It's not, and it really opens the conversation. I want my kids to, to come and talk to me. Uh, I want to be not just their their dad. I just want to be their best friend as well, and I want to have that, uh, that open door. Like, listen, you know, I knew when I was going to have kids, the chances are that they're going to experiment to use drugs, so I'm going to reduce those risks that they are going to experiment and definitely make sure that they're educated to understand what's out there and, uh, you know, what drugs are probably the best ones if you're going to experiment to start with. <laughs>
0: Yeah. It seems like the, the old frying pan and the egg from the eighties or nineties, whenever I think that was Reagan, maybe Reagan's oh, wife. Yeah. I think Nancy Reagan was the, the the genius behind that. Didn't do anything. Didn't change the fact that, you know, you can't scare people um, away from that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, that's great. Um, yeah. It sounds to me like, like I, I love that, um, that perspective because I've noticed that there's all, there's kind of a line with trauma of acknowledgement that it existed and responsibility for not passing it on and not having it continue to impact our lives and being able to put a bit of a punctuation mark on that experience, even, you know, a generational punctuation mark, you know, a period stops, stops with a guy, doesn't get passed on to his kids. I love that. Uh, I love that perspective. And I think that, you know, fathers in particular, I'm a father, but parents, our job is to protect our kids. And I think sometimes we don't realize that our job is to protect our kids from ourselves, the, the unhealed parts of self and the unhealed parts of families that find their way into the next generation. So, um, so I love that. I think that's a wonderful way for us to, to close out this round of the podcast. And, uh, I will have links in the show notes for people to check you out and book you for a speaking engagement because, um, You are obviously a great storyteller and a very inspirational story. And so, Guy, thank you so much for joining me. Is there any last, anything else you want to, one last piece of advice or direction you want to point the audience? Um, Something for them to check out, a book to read or a website to check out or a cause to support.
1: Well, hey, you know what? Wherever you are in your community, support your local harm reduction community uh, service. If you can, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially now, or for people who don't have much, please, uh, you know, uh, there's many ways you can donate. If you can't donate money, maybe you can donate some stuff that's lying around like clothes, socks. Um, And if you can, uh, donate time, because that's one of the biggest things that, that people need. And Um, you know, for anybody that is out there using drugs, please use them safely, uh, use it in OPS. And if you don't have that use with a buddy and, and, uh, just stay safe. And, uh, if you are struggling with using drugs and, and, um, and trying to, you know, uh, repair your life, then, then, Hey, you know, I know the battle and, and keep battling and, and reach out. It's, uh, um, there's no, there's no shame in that, um. You know you're a, you're a valuable part of the community and uh, we love you and, and just take care and stay safe. Awesome.
0: I will echo all of that. Thank you guy and uh, yeah. real, real pleasure to chat with you and we'll uh, we'll chat again soon.
1: Thanks buddy.